Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. Today I'm channeling Natasha Leone with my gravelly voice because I'm getting over a cold. Mm, her voice is wild. It is. <laughs> like an old man. And it fits her so perfectly. It does. Speaking of, I still need to rewatch, not rewatch, I need to watch season two of Russian Doll. I rewatched oh, yeah. season one in preparation and then I haven't gotten around to starting it. I really liked it. Okay, I gotta watch it. Oh, Speaking also, of hi, which, listener. yeah, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> we just kind of started in. That was a slow, the slow build. But today, episode 44 and our official anniversary episode, birthday episode, marking of Happy one year. Birthday <laughs> to us. <laughs> Are you gonna wear the dress? <laughs> What, what do you mean? I'm already wearing it. <laughs> oh, yes. So our official anniversary slash birthday is July 2nd. Our first episode, which was called Effigies and Wax, came out on July 2nd, 2021. 2021. Can you even? Like... <laughs> <laughs> Which we're late coming in with our with our anniversary episode, but I just read last night that seventy million years ago, one Earth day was twenty three and a half hours, so a year was actually three hundred and seventy two days. So we're having a prehistoric birthday. In my mind, I had the quick thought that I immediately squashed of. Oh, let me make a dinosaur noise. <laughs> I actually have written in my notes, rar. <laughs> so we're absolutely the same person still after all this time. <laughs> I guess I was like channeling Jurassic Park. <laughs> yeah. So I know. And like last episode or two episodes ago, we were talking about it and I said, oh, we started this just in February or March as the pandemic happened, which, as we all know, was 2020. So I added a year to our last year because it feels like it was two years ago, but it was really only a year ago. It could have been two years ago. <laughs> it could have been passing. five. <laughs> oh, no, I mean, like, talking about doing a podcast, maybe. Oh, yeah. Well, it was more than that. It was whenever I was out there for the fire. That was 2018. Oh, my God. I'm feeling so old. <laughs> when I was out there for the fire, you know, celebrating. <laughs> when I was out there I during the fire. I met you six and a half years ago. I know. It's crazy, isn't it? We're, like, steadily approaching being friends for a decade. I know, we're, I know six and a half is still pretty close to the middle, but in my mind... <laughs> We're getting there. We're closer to 10 than we are to zero. Yep. That's what I always say. <laughs> That's how I measure things. It's either 10 or zero. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So but, you are the metric system. Yeah. Base 10. <laughs> uh, I had a thought the other day, like, what do you think if we offered to England and 
Australia, Northern Ireland, Ireland, maybe I'm not sure. Like we as the United States will once and for all convert to the metric system if they will start driving on the right side of the road. Do you think that's a deal we could broker? Because like, I think we would get a Nobel Peace Prize for that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I can see it. I can see the campaign. It seems a fair trade. It's like we have to change all of our measuring cups and they have to get all new cars. It feels very fair. I would love to get rid of our measuring system (laughs) because I don't know anything. What the fuck is a pint? I mean, it makes no sense. No. And an ounce. (laughs) And a fluid ounce. Oh, God. Don't get me started on ounces versus fluid ounces. They're basically the same thing right i live my life that they're the same (laughs) (laughs) and then teaspoons and tablespoons like i mean i get it but like there's got to be a better way there is a better way it's called the metric system (laughs) y'all i was i mean this wouldn't help me in the metric system either but i literally last night (laughs) it's so stupid i googled how to tell how long 1500 feet is (laughs) (laughs) i've started doing more of that which i think is technically known as like natural language search or something like that and i like it because you get really relevant results that way they were like it's point to whatever of a mile and i was like that's not what i need so eventually i figured it out it's a half of a furlong (laughs) yeah (laughs) In Google Maps, you can, like, right-click to measure distance, mm-hmm. and you can, like, drag a straight line. So you can see on a practical map how far that actually is. Right. I was like, yes, this is what I needed, but it took some clever Googling to get it there. <laughs> so, like, oh, it's 300 meters, or, and, no, 500 meters, and I was just like, fuck you this is not what i mean i also can't imagine what are like meters or yards or miles i need to know like the practical from my eyes how far away from my house to whatever as the as the The crow flies (laughs) how far i i can't i have like really incredibly bad spatial awareness when it comes to like size Mm, I do too well to volume like I've done so much graphic design over the years that I can visually center anything like down to two decimal places but volume like I cannot pick a Tupperware out to save my life like (laughs) forget it it's and it's like I'll pick one no that's too much and then like four Tupperwares later I finally have it right and then I have to wash all my dishes I have for sure had it where I end up with like five spoonfuls of something in a tiny little container because <laughs> it was so close to right. <laughs> then you just throw that out because, you know. Yeah, I always hit the dilemma and <laughs> we'll cut this out. In <laughs> my Tupperware where it's like, I don't know, I then I don't know how to dish them out into meal servings. So I'll end up with like either too much or too little. And when it's too little, I feel like I have to force myself to like 
eat it with the other one because it won't actually be enough for a vinyl meal. Right, right. Yeah, it's hard. It's super hard. Or you could just have children and then if you wait more than 10 minutes to serve yourself anything, it's gone and then you don't have to worry about it. (laughs) Yeah. I'll wait. I'll wait for that. (laughs) Uh, So one year. One year. I just can't believe it. And I mean, sorry if you, well, if you disagree, I don't know why you're listening, but I think we're doing a great job. (laughs) Well, speaking of that, we decided off pod that we were going to do a little look back over the last year and take a look at the 10 most popular episodes. Do you remember agreeing to that last time? I do. Okay. Because I did it. And I'm going to say it even if you don't remember because I did the work. (laughs) Woo! Top 10! 10. Number 10. Yes. Coming in. Okay, you do that. You do that part. (laughs) All right. Let me find my right screen. Okay. Number 10. We actually have three episodes tied for number 10. Now, you know, like on official lists, when there's a tie, they actually take up places. So it's like first tied for second, and then it jumps to fourth. Like I'm Mm -hmm. not doing that. So I have a lot more than 10. So get ready. Tied for number 10, we had three episodes with the same listener count. Bonus episode four, which was our review of Mayor of Easttown, which introduced the Uh, world to our Kate Winslet obsession. Love her. Episode 17, which was part one of our first two-parter that we did, all about the Green River case. And episode 31, which was part one of our look at the case of family annihilator John List. Damn. Yeah. So that's number 10. Sound effect, please. Number nine. (laughs) We have a four-way tie for number nine. You ready? Yes. So we have episode 12, which was a look at the infamous Slenderman attack in Wisconsin. Episode 22, about Michael Eilig, a.k.a. Party Monster. Episode 19, a really super deep dive into Vlad 3, a.k.a. Vlad the Impaler, a.k.a. Dracula. One of my favorites, I think. And episode 10, which introduced the world to our Melanie Linsky obsession. Ugh, obsessed. (laughs) All right, sound effect. Both women excellent american accents i mean mind-blowing they speak american better than i do frankly i in my mind could confuse them and think they are american oh for sure i think when my husband and i were watching yellow jackets he had no idea that melanie linsky was not american because he Uh, had never seen the movie that was based on the case that we covered in episode 10 then number eight (laughs) and we have our last tie in our top 10 and it is between episode 32 which was part two of that john list case that we talked about and episode 26 about the far too short life of dorothy stratton Mm. yeah that was a sad one i've already forgotten the next number (laughs) i think it's seven it is seven (laughs) at number seven we have episode 20 which looks at sacramento-based serial killer and overrated culinary artist dorothea puente ah i'll always remember that mia like cooked (laughs) (laughs) 
The sixth most listened to episode was episode 23, a look into the life and mysterious death of Sunny Von Bulo and her Euro trash husband, Klaus. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. That was my local story. And in fifth place, this one kind of surprised me. It was episode 29, our look into the still unsolved death of Karen Silkwood, badass activist and whistleblower in the nuclear industry. I love that. I mean, it's weird to say I love that. Like, there are pieces I really love out of all of our episodes, but I I loved that one because I feel like it's so underrated kind mm-hmm. of in like true crime discussion mm-hmm. and maybe that's why it's up higher than I would have guessed yeah yeah totally so then coming in at fourth is the only mini episode to crack the top 10 and that is mini episode three entitled the goddess Hoda Kotbi so <laughs> this is either a testament to the undeniable appeal of pod friend and evangelist Liz B which, you know, fair. She shared her inciting incidents with listeners in that mini app, or the power of Hoda's brand. I don't know. What do you think, yes. Andrew? <laughs> also, RIP to the mini episode. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's also our in memoriam section. It is our in memoriam. <laughs> it's like bonus episode, <laughs> mini episode. In the arms of the angel. Yes. If you miss it, let us know. But we don't miss all the extra work that those were. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, When this becomes our full-time job, we'll bring them back. Oh, my God. We will bring back the inciting incident so hard because, yeah. I mean, it's solid. It's a solid concept. I stand by it, which it was actually your concept. But I still stand by it, even though it was your (laughs) idea. (laughs) Now, um... Our third most listened to episode last year was episode 13, The Not-So-Perfect Crime, which explored the chilling case of Bobby Franks in Chicago in the 20s. Yeah. Yeah. And then in second and first place, can you put in a drum roll here? Like, there we go. (laughs) In second and first place, we have episodes 25 and 24, our two-part look at the Columbine Massacre. Wow. Okay. I'm glad I didn't do any of the work for this because that is genuinely shocking to me. Yeah. I mean, I was really surprised too. And I think part of it is like, I don't even really think, I mean, we did it. So, and it's crime and it's true, but it doesn't really fit in my mind, the kind of typical true crime mold, but obviously, you know, the time and like, how terrible and common gun violence is in the U.S. I mean, has to have something to do with it. Uh, I'm so, so curious already what our top 10 is going to be for this next year. I know. (laughs) Will it be today's episode? Perhaps. Although without jumping ahead, well, I mean, we can jump ahead. But none of the really historical ones other than Vlad popped into the top 10, even though personally, those are some of my favorite ones. But I don't know. Any other big surprises for you in that list? Like, were there ones that you expected to be there that weren't? Well, in the same vein, I was thinking Jack the Ripper. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think kind of like the inverse of that Karen Silkwood is 
there's so much out there on Jack the Ripper to pop into people's kind of radar on that topic might be harder than if people search Karen Silkwood, you know, there's yeah a more limited number of things. Yeah, I don't know. Do you have a personal favorite? Oh, dang. I don't think I don't think I do. Um there is something very satisfying about Dracula. Mhm. Vlad 3. And then I found something really satisfying in Billy the Kid as well. Mhm. Mhm. But I I like them all. I mean, I think that's really a testament that there hasn't been an episode in this entire year that I've been like, ugh, I'm yeah. not interested in learning about this. Right, right. And and I should say, you know, obviously this is biased towards the older episodes because this is cumulative listens. This isn't like listens in the first week of release or anything like that. Mm. But still, I mean, the Columbine episodes weren't that long ago and they were the clear front runners. Do you have a personal favorite or one that sticks out? I mean, in general, I kind of like the historical ones, which I think is so ironic because history, besides PE, <laughs> history was my worst subject all through school. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I like those. But I, I think like you, I mean, they feel like all are my children and I can't really pick among them. Each one has something that I like about it. So, yeah, it's hard. It would be hard to pin it down to just one. This is probably recency bias, but also not not so much the, like, Wineville chicken coop murder part, mm-hmm. but the changeling story. Oh, sure. You're a part of the episode. Well, yours is just, <laughs> it was so much more brutal than I imagined. <laughs> But I didn't that, come here today to get my work trashed. Thank that you bit very of much. research, <laughs> the research part, that's why it's that's why it's fresh to me. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. the Christine Collins story, diving into that, which I already knew, but then diving into the reporter who got the source that the city was gonna destroy the records and like that sort of unknown piece of it all yeah. was like whoa, this is, like, really satisfying my, like, detective sleuth Right. (laughs) Who, by the way, I added on Twitter, like, hoping that he might see it and reply, and he didn't. Boo. But Uh, it's okay. There's still time. There's still time. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I mean, listener, if you – and we always say listener, like we have one. Listeners, (laughs) all of you (laughs) – all hundreds of you if you have favorites let us know and if you have ideas for this coming year which are we going to call them seasons i feel like our format doesn't really work in seasons but anyway if you have ideas for the upcoming year we're more in a fiscal year model If you have ideas, send them to us, please. For the love of all that is holy, send them to us. Yes. We know you're I, listening because we're creepers. Yeah, we can literally see. <laughs> uh, and we do a great job, in my opinion, of picking them. But it would be helpful if you gave us some suggestions. I mean, Kirsten and I, our brainstorms are always kind of like, um... 
what now? I know. And like we've had some nail biter ones where we take it really down to the line in terms of deciding. Some we decide like Lizzie Borden. That one we know is happening. We're just like saving it because it's going to be so good. But Mm -hmm. others, I mean, we literally decide, I don't know, like the week before. You know, our next record session, for example, which we have no topics chosen for yes, at present. Correct. <laughs> so write in if you if you want your chance, if you're real fast and you have a good idea, there's a chance you could hear it from idea to finished product in two weeks. Totally. Totally. So send them to us now, goddammit. And in prepper preparing preparing. I've like switched into my Hungarian accent mode. In preparing for this episode, I went back and I actually listened to episode one again, or at least the first like 25 minutes of it. And I think it holds up really well, I have to say. I mean, we were obviously a little nervous and we were enunciating as if our <laughs> lives fucking depended on it. <laughs> but it, you know, it feels like, on brand and all of our little ticks and themes that you know we had then we still have now Mm -hmm. um but yeah i don't know i feel proud of it i didn't listen back and wince which i was kind of like a little expecting to because i'm very self-critical but i don't know have you listened to any of the old ones lately i have not you should i it's still like probably because of the editing I'm like I remember a lot of them (laughs) yeah because you listen to them 20 times before they ever make it but that was such a good one I mean learning about public dissections and I know the incredible history of Marie Tussaud yeah the real woman I just saw an article about her pop up the other day and it was like, did you know? And I was like, you know what, motherfucker? I did because we covered this. This is old news. But it was like the perfect choice, too, for kicking off our con- like the concept that we have, which is this is a tale as old as time in terms of people being fascinated by whatever. Yeah, it's a song as old as rhyme. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well... That episode had a lot of banter, as this one now is turning out to. Are you ready to jump into? I think so. Our Hungarian-themed episode? You get to hear some accents and some mispronunciations (laughs) on my part. (laughs) Yes, so I have as my first bullet in my notes. I'm going to attempt Hungarian pronunciations throughout my part of the story because it feels authentic to the time. But please be kind. And I also wanted to give a shout out to Forvo.com, the best pronunciation tool out there for pronunciations from native speakers. So it was super helpful. Yeah. So check them out if you want to pronounce things correctly or at least have a chance to pronounce them correctly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Today's episode, we are going to take a look at Battery Erzebet or the Countess Elizabeth Bathory, as she's known in English. She was born in 1560 in Nierbator, a small but important town in what was then the Kingdom of Hungary, part of the House of Habsburg, a.k.a. the House of Austria, or the ruling monarchy of Central Europe and the Iberian Peninsula for almost a thousand years, 
and probably most importantly, part of the Holy Roman Empire. Nowadays, you can find Nirbator in the eastern part of modern Hungary. Erzsébet was raised in nearby Echid Castle in modern-day Negyeced, Hungary. She was raised as a Protestant Calvinist in line with the Echid branch of the Batteries. Her father descended from that line. Her mother, though, was also a Battery, descended from the Shomio branch. See also Habsburg inbreeding and Habsburg jaw. <laughs> The Batteries were one of the most prominent noble dynasties in all of Europe at the time. They took their name from the town of Nirbater, originally Bater, which had been gifted to the family from King Ladislaus IV in the 13th century for valiant military service. The history is really complicated, but Erzsébet had multiple cousins on both sides of her family tree who were Transylvanian voivodes an uncle who was the King of Poland slash Grand Duke of Lithuania. Her older brother was Judge Royal of Hungary for 19 years, and there were some Roman cardinals thrown in there for good measure on the Catholic side of her family. So very upper crust. Super upper crust. And if you haven't already, now is a good time to go back and listen to episode 19 that we referred to earlier about Vlad III, because we get into some of the Transylvanian and Central European history. But if you don't have time for that right now, or you just want to press on with this episode first, I'll give you some of the cliff notes. A voivode was a ruler often appointed by the king, usually ruling a territory of several counties. Depending on the time and specific place, because Central Europe is big, a voivode could be a military ruler, sometimes in some sources described as a warlord, or it could be more of what would be called a governor, or in some places it had princely connotations even. A judge royal, which is what her brother was for a very long time, was the highest ranking judge in the kingdom, only outranked by a palatine, which will come up later in our story. A palatine, or later known as a viceroy, literally vice king, was mm. the highest ranking official who served as a direct representative of the monarch. Okay, so back to the story. The Batteries were a big deal, as we said. And as a result, Erzsébet grew up in luxury and was highly educated, not only for a woman of the time, but for anyone at that time. Mm-hmm. She was reportedly super smart and was fluent in Latin, German, Hungarian, and Greek. And she was also known as a stunner. And we'll share some pictures of portraits of her from that time. She had really dark raven hair and pale skin. But her life wasn't entirely charmed. The young Erzsébet suffered from what was then known as the falling sickness, a.k.a. epilepsy. And at the time, the treatment for epilepsy was to take the blood of people without epilepsy and rub it on the lips of sufferers. So, like, super cool. It's just, <laughs> like, thank our lucky stars <laughs> for medicine. I know, <laughs> right? That's like, I. it's a tweet from somewhere I am paraphrasing, but I always think of it's like, 
the doctor says, well, it looks like you've got ghosts in your bones, so take some <laughs> cocaine and see me in the morning. <laughs> yeah, basically. It's just like, oh yeah, the cure for epilepsy is just rubbing someone's blood on your lips. Just some bloody chapstick, but it has to be the blood of someone without epilepsy, duh. Well, yeah, I, I mean, we all get that. <laughs> and then there was something in some of the reports about blood and a piece of skull from someone without epilepsy being quote given to sufferers as a seizure was ending so i don't even know what that means to be given blood and a piece of skull yeah well just you guys check your mailbox and you'll find out (laughs) nightmare fuel basically (laughs) and so i mean i'm kind of foreshadowing later parts of the story but maybe some people speculate this was some kind of sick imprinting the blood and skull and i don't know but we'll get to that later well yeah it's not just like there were blood banks (laughs) right 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 yeah they know this was like artisanal blood and skull that they harvested themselves i mean someone might have volunteered but i'm guessing it's a voluntold scenario (laughs) hey, I just have this spare piece of skull I'm not really using. (laughs) Well, even the blood, like, a single cut could kill you. I know, (laughs) I know, I know, I know. (laughs) So whether her epilepsy just eased naturally as she got older or the blood skull treatment miraculously worked, my sources couldn't say. But her health seemingly improved, and by the age of 10... Ergebet was engaged to Nadojdi Ferent, age 14. Okay, it's better at least that he's 14, but oh my <laughs> god, nightmare. Yeah. The Nadojdi family was wealthy, but not quite as big a deal, nobility-wise, as the Batteries. In 1573, at the age of 13, Ergebet reportedly gave birth to the child of a local peasant boy. The Batteries are said to have paid a local woman to adopt the child and raise it in Wallachia, part of modern-day Romania. Some rumors say that Ferrant had the boy tortured, killed, and fed to hogs. Mm. These reports didn't come out until after Ergebet's death, so, you know, grain of salt, but this is kind of her childhood. Mm-hmm. But the political match between the Batteries and the Nadojdis was too good to let a potential premarital dalliance and revenge killing dampen the marital mood. In 1575, at the ages of 15 and 19 respectively, Ergebet and Ferrant were wed before a gathering of 4,500 of their closest friends and family. As part of the deal, Ferrant gifted Ergebet Cheta Castle in modern-day Slovakia, as well as 17 neighboring villages. He also assumed her family name against the usual custom of the time, and pretty much every custom always. Hell yeah. (laughs) And this was just, again, an indication of what a big deal her family was. It was much higher status for him to have her name and for him to essentially give her a dowry or this huge gift when they married. Mm -hmm. In 1578, Ferrant was named chief commander of the Hungarian army and left home to fight in the Habsburg-Ottoman Wars, which lasted for, like, forever. 
He spent many of these years away from home fighting the Ottomans off and on. And during this time, Erjibet was said to take on lovers, which, I mean, front too, right? Like he was yeah. gone. And it just is like it wasn't worth mentioning that he also had lovers, I guess. But they had, you know, a politically arranged marriage, essentially. In 1585, a full 10 years after they were married, Erjibet gave birth to their first child, Anna. In 1519, Urshlea was born, followed by Katalin in 1594 and Pal in 1598. There was a fifth child who I think died in infancy. The children were raised by governesses like Ergebet had been herself, and so they didn't cramp her style too much as she continued being a raven-haired beauty and taking lovers and whatnot, whatever she did with herself. But while Ferrant was away, she was essentially in charge of the lands, the village, and again, big deal. In 1601, Ferrant was beginning to slow down. He was 45 years old. He had been fighting in this kind of endless war. And at this point, he was known as the Black Knight of Hungary, both for his courage in battle as well as his cruelty to Ottoman prisoners, which was fairly well documented. Mm-hmm. Again, if you listen back to the Vlad episode, you'll know that this was this kind of went both ways. It was just a really brutal time to be alive. Around this time, though, Ferrant developed a mysterious illness that caused him tremendous pain in his legs, and his condition progressed until 1603 when he was completely disabled. So coincidentally or not, just as his perceived power was beginning to fade, rumors started circulating about Ergebet and suspicious activities that were happening at the castle. By 1604, the year that Ferrant succumbed to his mystery illness, the rumors were rampant throughout the kingdom. What were these rumors, you ask, Andrew? What were these rumors? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you. There were rumors of servant girls gone missing from the villages surrounding the castle, abductions, uh, more specifically peasant girls between the ages of 10 and 14 who were either lured to the castle for work or who had gone for employment and never being seen again. There were also rumors of servants who were seen in the surrounding villages looking battered and even disfigured as they went about kind of castle business. I don't Mm -hmm. know, went shopping or whatever they had to do outside of the castle walls. There were rumors of torture, murder, but Perhaps unsurprisingly, at the time, it was not a crime for nobility to harm or even kill a peasant. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> not not a thing at all. It doesn't even feel that far off from <laughs> where we are these days. Yeah. So the rumors continued to circulate, and according to other reports, the castle began to have trouble recruiting servants slash Ergebet had trouble finding victims because of these rumors. At this point, according to later testimony, Ergebet began inviting daughters of the gentry in the region to her gynaceum, which is, if you don't know, and I didn't, I had to look it up, a portion of a home or building reserved for women. 
And so they would come there so that they could ostensibly learn about courtly etiquette. Well, they started disappearing too. So now it becomes a problem because these are not peasants. Yeah. And finally, in 1609, the king got wind of what was going on. And again, according to the official story, was compelled to act because these are, you know, lesser gentry, but still they matter in in the social hierarchy of the time. Mm -hmm. So in 1610... Uh, you know, about a decade after the rumors began, King Matthias II, a.k.a. the Holy Roman Emperor, enlisted Torzo Geiger, Palatine of Hungary, passionate Lutheran, and distant cousin of Erzsébet to investigate the rumors. Mm -hmm. Geiger enlisted two emissaries to go to the area and collect evidence. Within several months, they had over 50 sworn witness statements testifying to all manner of atrocities with some witchcraft and black magic thrown in for good measure. In December 1610, Geier went to the castle himself unannounced with a larger party to arrest Erzsébet and maybe possibly catch her in the act. It was later rumored that the party interrupted Erzsébet torturing a young victim, but in fact, she was just having dinner. Gerg wrote letters back to his wife, though, that described one girl who was found dead in the castle and another alive, but barely. Incidentally, there is no evidence that he or anyone else questioned this girl who was alive to ask what happened to her, and we'll get into how the evidence is all kinds of sketchy in just a bit. Mm -hmm. Erzsébet was placed under house arrest at that time, and four of her servants were arrested as accomplices. In the lead-up to their trials, more witness testimony was taken, and in the end, there were reportedly over 300 witness and survivor statements. The four servants also eventually, quote, confessed after being tortured thoroughly to disposing of bodies, though they didn't admit to participating in the torture or murders. Their reports varied from from servant to servant, but put the victim count between 36 and 51. But other accounts put the number at over 600 young girls, Mm -hmm. which, you know, involved the help of her servants. One witness claimed to have seen a list in Hergé Bet's own hand that listed 650 victims, but the book was never produced into evidence, and there really is no solid evidence of that list ever existing. It's remarkably similar to serial killers mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in modern day. Right. Like, even just, again, recency bias, like the chicken coop, where it's like, well, here's the three official, and maybe it was 20. Yeah, right. Yeah. And with this, I mean, it's I mean, virtually impossible to know because so much time and, you know, secrecy because she was nobility and... Mm-hmm. There was a certain pressure to not let this kind of information go supernova. But it being the Renaissance and all, Ergebet avoided a public trial, uh, reportedly at Geierg's urging to protect the reputation of the nobility, i.e. himself. And she was instead kept under house arrest in a walled-in apartment within her castle until her death in 1614 at the age of 54. But again, some reports have that she was walled in to 
like a cell, some that she was, it was a Walden apartment and others that she was really just free to roam around the castle. She just couldn't leave the castle. Mm -hmm. Her servants, on the other hand, were tried after the torture that led to their air quotes confessions. Unsurprisingly, they were sentenced to death. Three of them were then tortured again and put to death very slowly and painfully. The fourth, because of her young age, was executed using the more humane method of beheading. Hmm. A fifth woman, who supposedly had taught Ergebet the dark arts, was later put to death as well. Now, over 400 years later, Ergebet is sometimes known as the blood countess, and I think you'll probably get into this in your part of um, the story, Andrew. And she's kind of referred to that way, which I think harkens back to Bloody Mary and, you know, some of the ways that women are described when when they kind of do some of the same things that men do. Mm-hmm. And the stories of her depravity are legion. Again, you're going to get into that whole side of things. And that includes the widely circulated myth that she killed young virgins for their blood, which she then bathed in to preserve her youthful good looks. And this part of the story is almost certainly complete fiction. She was accused of a lot of really gross, gory, and heinous atrocities, but there are no reports of blood bathing or virgin sacrifice until a full century after her death. So that Mm -hmm. was almost certainly kind of myth-making later. But wait, 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 wait. Was any of it true? (laughs) Let's go back. You know, I always have to, uh, I hate the term, but be kind of devil's advocate. And I did some more digging because as soon as somebody says witchcraft and dark arts, like that's just a huge motherfucking red flag that (laughs) some serious like misogyny was going on. (laughs) So I did a little bit of digging on the Googles and all of those witness statements and some reports of physical evidence and, you know, plus and plus servant confessions and, you know, 400 years of stories. But when you take kind of a sober look at the facts themselves, there are some questions here. First, of the 289 witness accounts, not over 300, as is still widely reported, more than 250 of those were hearsay or contained no relevant information to the case at all. Mm. So now we're down to fewer than 40 witness statements. Okay, so that's a huge difference, right? Many of these witnesses were beholden in some way to Georg, BFF of the Holy Roman Emperor and the second most powerful man in the Kingdom of Hungary. Mm -hmm. Kind of a big deal, okay? Did I mention that the House of Habsburg and King Matthias himself owed Ergebet some serious coin? Mm. And that debt just happened to be canceled when she was placed under arrest. So motive. Also, her really seriously vast land holdings were divvied up by her kids and their spouses when she was imprisoned. So motive. And there was a little matter of her shifting allegiance to her nephew, Prince Gaber, Battery of Transylvania, who was an enemy of the Habsburgs, i.e., Matthias and Geirg, who orchestrated the case against her. So 
Like fascinating. Follow the money, follow the betrayals, follow the land, all of this. It's like Game of Thrones. Kind of. I mean, I I never watched it, but I've seen enough memes to like have been getting serious Game of Thrones vibes while I was doing this research. So in the end, what's the truth? Well, if you're partial to the no smoke methodology, then it's highly likely that Ergebet would not have won any Employer of the Year accolades. There is written evidence in the form of letters not generated for the official, possibly politically motivated investigation that details her cruelty towards servants and that of her husband as well, for what it's worth. At the very least, it seems really highly likely that she abused her servants, perhaps to the point we would now call torture. But was she a sexual sadist murderer? I mean, the truth probably lies somewhere in between Nightmare Boss and the most prolific female serial killer of all time. Yeah. But exactly where on that spectrum, we probably will never know for sure. What we do know is that through a modern lens, which sees accusations of witchcraft as a major red flag, there were a lot of powerful men who had a lot of reasons to want her neutralized. Mm -hmm. We also know that the, quote, rumors about her depravity happened to coincide with her husband's waning health and power. And lastly, we know that her behavior, while reprehensible by modern standards, obviously, was not all that anomalous at this time in history, evidenced by the fact that murdering peasants wasn't even a crime. Mm -hmm. So that is the long and sinister tale of Batari Ergebet, the little lady with a beautiful name, a bewitching countenance, and a brutal reputation. Damn, it's so interesting. Like, <laughs> I was really visualizing it in my head. Like, and it's it's a real question mark because she could have been a monster. Yeah. Like a full mon, not just like a a brutal person to servants, but like she could have been the most prolific serial killer. Yeah. And I mean, that's what I found so startling because, you know, I kind of had in my mind that she was what I had always heard her to be. And then as I'm digging into this and I'm seeing, you know, how many people would have a motive to basically orchestrate a witch hunt against her. I mean, you know, was she an awesome person? No, but like, were any nobles at that time? Like, again, if you listen back to Vlad, um, it was just fucking nuts back then. And like, you know, he learned from the Ottomans and, like, it sounds like Ergebet learned some kind of, of her techniques from her husband mm -hmm. who had learned them at war. I mean, so ugh, I don't know. I'm not saying I would I would want to be friends with her or, like, I would want to work for her. And does she deserve the pillorying that she has gotten throughout history for essentially what was, like, the norm? Well, and shout out to another favorite episode, the Bloody Mary episode. Yeah. Yes, Mary, Queen of Scots, did atrocious things just like every ruler. Yeah. But her, like, the villainization of her, the epitaph of Bloody Mary, mm -hmm. when she killed a couple hundred people and her dad killed tens of thousands of people. Yeah. It's like 
just what history does to powerful women. And yeah. again, she killed a lot of people. And there's yeah. a good chance Erzabet was a serial killer. <laughs> so like not maybe this is one of those cases of if we had like the magical ball that tells us our future, like Yeah. Or not our future, but like you can look on history. Like maybe this yeah. is like one to dive into of like what was the real story here? Right. I mean, it would be fascinating to know. And I think it an interesting kind of reflection of us and our society, the real kind of tipping point or the crux of the matter seems to be not did she harm and potentially kill a lot of people. That seems kind of like, you know, undisputed. Mm -hmm. But did she enjoy it? Like that's kind of the what would tip her into this other category of like what we think of as a serial killer now was, was it, or was she just a person acting according to the norms of a ruler at that time? Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know. I don't know that that can be known, but yeah, super interesting. Damn. I want to know so badly. <laughs> Plus I love the name Erjebet. Er yeah, I can't roll my R's. You, Erzebet. I mean, it just sounds so. I don't know. Cool. I might try to stick with it instead of Elizabeth in mine. Erzebet. I'm sure I'm butchering it, but I'm trying. Oh, I'm a I'm a butcher some names next week. <laughs> but you know, as long as all that's all that we do is butcher names and not people, then we're on the right side of the true crime spectrum. Yes, very much so. <laughs> Butchering names, not people. <laughs> uh, okay, write that down because <laughs> that could be a good merch in our future. That should be a that should be a t shirt. <laughs> At the very least a social post. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah. Well I'm excited about part two to go through I mean, I'll just tease us now, yeah. get it out of the way. Erzabet is in contention for the most cultural influence ever. Wow. Oh, my gosh. I can't wait. It is astronomical. Mm. But, listener, you'll get to hear that next week in part yes. two. Stay tuned. So interesting. Yeah. I, I want to do maybe a deeper dive on her now. I know, right? Well, not to spoil next, but yeah, like, I think, I mean, she needs a, a true, like, feminist relook. Her if story. only there was proof. I know. Well, like, I mean. Proof she didn't do it. <laughs> if we had more time, I mean, there is documentation out there and, you know, the government of Hungary, I think, has records that are public that, you know, but I don't, I didn't have time for that. This is something we do in our spare time. Yes, very much that. <laughs> well, listener, definitely come back next week for part two, and we're going to go deep, deep, deep into the pop culture. Yes. And as always, we appreciate the hell out of you. Abso-fucking-lutely. Da-da-da-da! Yay! Please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review our show. It really helps us out. Plus, we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode. This has been a Facts from Janet production. 